Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. In general, a lot of people think, oh, money laundering, and it sounds sexy. But let me tell you, like traditional financial investigations, they're hard, they're long, they're tedious. When Beth Bisbee started at the Drug Enforcement Administration in 2014, she was investigating money laundering with Excel spreadsheets. I pinch myself a lot of times of like, that's crazy that the word of mouth just got around so quickly just for me doing a job that I found really interesting and just fun. And it wasn't because I was like, I am the crypto queen. It wasn't that at all. It was just... Watch me call you crypto queen for the rest of this interview. (laughs) Beth's DEA days are behind her. Today, she's the head of U.S. investigations for Chainalysis one of the leading private firms supplying blockchain intelligence to the federal government. I was very passionate about it, and so that passion then, like, dispels across into the agency, and it then allowed for a lot of success across the agency. Beth was one of the first voices within the agency to say, hold on, federal investigators need to be digitally savvy. They need to be well-versed in cryptocurrency and the ways of the dark web, to catch a new breed of drug kingpins. Hence the Crypto Queen moniker. Hers wasn't the only federal agency going through a culture shift in the mid-2010s, which is when cybercrime, especially darknet and crypto-related cybercrime, started to really take off. This is Politico Tech. I'm your host, Mohar Chatterjee. If you're just tuning in, hold up, scroll back, and start at the beginning. You'll hear about the tradecraft of darknet marketplaces and get real familiar with the big personalities that set up the cybercriminal underground. And if you're still here, two episodes in, welcome back. You're my type of person. It was an uphill battle. Money laundered. Threat actors moving into that. The dotnet markets. More and more the cybercriminals. Illicit activity. And I say battle in, the, in a positive way. Today, we're resurfacing from the darkest parts of the internet and talking to investigators who spent large chunks of their career watching the space with a magnifying glass. I'm going to be honest, one of the things that I'd built up in my head, this image of the man, you know, the guy in the in the suit and the sunglasses and, you know, the, the classical FBI person. And uh, forgive me, but you come across like one of my professors. <laughs> Is, yeah, you know, the FBI has a great uh, stereotype from all the movies. You know, you see Silence of the Lambs, you have the FBI show on TV, and people, they picture what an FBI agent should look like, but really, uh, none of us really fit that stereotype. That guy? He's Keith Malarski. No longer an FBI man, but he's still in the game, as the managing director for Ernst & Young's cybersecurity practice. But for over two decades before that, He led the FBI's efforts to dismantle some of the most egregious hacking collectives and darknet forums around. I never knew this was a thing, but he's literally an award-winning FBI agent. If there was ever a guy to talk about taking down cybercriminal enterprises over a beer, that's Keith. In 2011, Malarski was promoted to lead the FBI cyber squad in Pittsburgh. Silk Road was established in February of that year. It's 2022 now, a whole decade since then. How has the landscape of the cybercriminal underground changed in this intervening decade? 
Back when I was doing it, it was all relatively new. One is the cyber criminals were new at it. Uh, law enforcement was new at uh, prosecuting it and investigating it. And really now what we've seen over this last decade, I think is a more maturity where these cyber criminal groups have become organized crime groups. They're not just these cyber criminal groups that I think a lot of people look at them. Uh, when you look at some of these ransomware organizations. Uh, so you look at like the Yukubits uh, or Evil Corp, uh, you know, group. This is a group that has an administrative staff. Uh, you know, they're buying real estate. They're a traditional organized crime group that just really kind of started off in cyber, you know, where as opposed to starting off with racketeering and traditional organized crime that you think of, they've kind of took it to the next level. And uh, so these groups just became so much more sophisticated, I think, in the last 10 years than, than when I was there. These aren't folks living in basements connecting to uh, a land party-esque like aesthetic. It's kind of a mature, almost boring business at times until it becomes not so boring. I mean, your stereotype analogy is spot on. You know, when I first joined cyber, my analogy was the movie War Games. You know, Matthew Broderick sitting in a basement trying to hack into the Pentagon. And really, reality couldn't be further from that, you know, from the sophistication uh, you know, of these threat actors to how they're organized and how they're able to leverage each other, you know, where they recruit online to hire coders and developers, you know, to develop their malware or their access executables and things like that. It's so much more sophisticated than that typical stereotype thing. So the longer a cyber criminal can stay one step ahead of the feds, the more time they have to build a reputation. And in a world where all you have is an online handle, reputation is key. Ten days after the Hydra bust, Russian authorities arrested Dmitry Pavlov, who admitted to providing servers for rent as an intermediary. He denied direct involvement in the site's administration, though. Moscow's Mishchansky District Court ruled to detain Pavlov ahead of trial on charges of large-scale drug trafficking, according to the court's database. That was the last time Russian agents even nominally cooperated with their American counterparts on a darknet law enforcement operation. And the Eastern European cybercriminal underworld just kept turning. Back to that Hydra analogy. They're pretty dang resilient. What are some of the major emerging technologies that have become sort of the cornerstone for the newest version of darknet marketplaces and forums? I think the biggest change, really, you know, that kind of took things from the beginning days when I was doing that was really, uh, you know, them utilizing the Onion Router and really kind of going off having a web page hosted at a normal colo and, you know, you being able to do who is and being able to see kind of where this was or that kind of really changed things uh, right off there, making it harder to find out where these groups are. But again, you know, when we're having more encrypted technology and communication that are easily accessible, uh, naturally they're going to go there because they know it's going to be harder for law enforcement to track them. If you think, again, way back into the days when I was there, you know, most of the criminals communicated via ICQ instant messaging or AOL instant messaging, and then they kind of moved to Jabber and slowly to Jabber encrypted communications. Where right now, you know, anybody on their phone, they can pop up a telegram channel or a signal channel and know that they're going to be protected. So the easy accessibility of encrypted communications 
I think has made it a lot harder for law enforcement to track and uh, to really kind of get that window into their private communications where it wasn't as sophisticated before. Okay, so encrypted communications are hard to track. But what about cryptocurrency tracking? Let's go back to Beth, our DEA crypto queen, who built her career around following the money. I became the quote-unquote seizing agent for a lot of the cryptocurrency investigations and um, learned how to seize cryptocurrency, which then led into a lot of just best practices and like what to do and what not to do because it was the wild west and I was doing things and like trying to figure it out on the fly and like it was a good time. A lot of the investigations that I worked on as well as the experiences of seizing cryptocurrency and writing reports really set a blueprint, if you will, for what is now being used. And was it perfect? No. And has it been improved upon? Of course. But it was one of those like leading the charge type of things that needed to be done. So in law enforcement, there's kind of like we call them go-bys, meaning like give me a template on what to do in different things. So send me a go-by. So that uh, applies to reports in a lot of ways. And so my reports became a lot of the go-bys that were used. So blueprints, if you will. Bisbee wasn't just leading a procedural shift in the DEA. She was helming a cultural shift. She laid the foundation for what would eventually become the DEA cyber support section. Starting in 2015, the initiative started off with a piece of paper of what is cryptocurrency. And at the time, it was what is Bitcoin, right? So it was super basic. And even DEA was like, go forth and conquer. Like, figure out what this actual initiative will be. And so from that, we had a lot of freedom to develop what we needed to within that So I think the table started to turn a little bit after Silk Road, just in the sense that there were more um, agents that were graduating from the academy and then they would land into the crypto realm. And then also the takedown of Alphabay really turned the trajectory within that. And then the one-off side of investigations to where it wasn't just drug trafficking on darknet markets. It was being used to launder money. And so it became a a narrative within DEA that it's not just darknet markets. Like, it's cryptocurrency that can be leveraged in any capacity for an investigation, and that's what we need to look at. And the culture shift for that then started to occur with the establishment of the cyber support section, really garnered that attention of like, oh, it, it is here to stay. So this is going to sound really Gen Z of me, and I am at best a zillennial. But it blows my mind that there was a time when you would have a law enforcement agency going, what is crypto? And knowing that that time was 2015. Did that strike you as, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but to me, that's like, isn't that a little late to the game? Silk Road had already gone through its bust. Alphabet was peaking. And this is when the DA asks, what is cryptocurrency? To put it into context, when an agency is working on investigations, investigations are very broad in the sense that they can have different components to those investigations. So even if it's a crypto investigation, it's not just going to be a crypto investigation. So even though Silk Road was very prevalent and prominent back in the day, that paled in comparison to the overall drug trafficking aspect that DEA is concerned with. So it's not that it wasn't important, but like they're dealing with 
much larger drug trafficking trends than what crypto was back in the day because it was a darknet market. So Silk Road was one. There weren't multiple. So after the takedown of Silk Road is when you saw the expansion to all these different darknet markets, similar to how law enforcement has go-bys, criminals have go-bys. So when Silk Road was taken down, the criminals are like, so that's pretty cool. <laughs> I, I could build that too, right? And so it became this disbursement to where like they took the blueprint of what Silk Road was, the lessons learned from Silk Road to then build out the marketplaces. It's a whack-a-mole. It, it is. It, it truly is, especially after, if you look at just being pioneers within that, criminals are pioneers as well. So once there's something that kind of catches on, it catches on for everybody, very similar to trends in general. So, I'm trying to contextualize here. This is six years after Bitcoin made its debut. Uh, was this a part of, of your investigations? What, what can you remember about your first Um, From my support role, we would receive voluminous records, so bank records, to be able to analyze and put into Excel spreadsheets and then look and view at the transactions that occur through these accounts and be able to follow the money. So it's essentially being able to create pivot tables within Excel and then be able to show the um, value that was transferred from one account to another, whether or not the funds were actually structured. So did they try to avoid different regulatory aspects of reporting and um, being able to flag that. So while cyber criminals were figuring out the blockchain, the DEA was using pivot tables to track them. I then became connected with individuals in FBI, IRS, and HSI that were actually supporting these types of investigations to get a know-how of what did you do in this? What resources did you use? And um, it became just like this cohort of people that you could then rely on in the early days. So that was one aspect of it. The other component was trying to figure out how to make sense of what was actually occurring on the blockchain for actually following the flow of funds. So because I was so skilled at using Excel, when I was looking at the blockchain to be able to try to follow the funds from this Bitcoin address that I got, I learned how to trace the funds on that by using Excel and the blockchain. Chainalysis, where Beth works now, has moved away from Excel-based crypto tracking. But the underlying principles are still the same. So Chainalysis has an investigative software called Reactor that helps simplify that mundane Excel spreadsheet that I had at the very beginning of my first crypto investigation to be able to streamline the process in order for investigations to actually be done and completed quicker. So rather than me poking around on a blockchain, I can leverage Reactor to be able to do that and streamline that process. Same with entities like Flashpoint. Flashpoint. That's where Andras taught Sifra works. Again, rather than querying an individual site on the dark web, Flashpoint allows me to be able to leverage that in a quicker, streamlined process. So they exist to be able to help with the investigation so that investigators aren't scrambling and it's actually advantageous. There's one additional tool in the federal arsenal worth noting against this sort of cybercrime. And that's sanctions administered and enforced by the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC. 
Those sanctions come with their own set of jurisdiction and efficacy questions. More on that later in the series. At the end of the day, no matter how advanced the technology gets, enterprising agents like Bisbee and Malarsky will turn to traditional investigative techniques to get the job done. But it's far from a perfect process. Next, we'll be diving a little deeper into what these intelligence gathering operations leave to be desired at the ground level. We'll talk to a police sergeant and the guys in charge of training federal investigators across the country to figure out what they're missing. It's just difficult to track, especially as a local law enforcement officer, because those crimes are so multi-jurisdictional, they're interstate, they're international, and money can be transferred so quickly throughout the world now, uh, whether it's conventional money or crypto. It just adds a lot of complexity when it comes to investigating those types of crimes. I'm Mohar Chatterjee. Subscribe wherever you're listening. Thanks for tuning in.